This is the Strike Mash Boil podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week, we walk you through a bunch of options for base malts. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. And as normal, I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. Phil, we have with us today, Tim and Switzer. Guys, welcome back. We are uh, gonna talk about base malt today, which is a pretty exciting topic for us. Uh, why it's important to choose a base malt, what is a base malt, some of the options that you have. Uh, Switzer specifically is gonna talk about uh, the continental malts, and Phil's gonna talk about some of the British malts, and Tim's gonna do the Americans. Yeah, and you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the show about picking hops or yeast, but you know, when you really think about the ingredients we're using, uh, base malt makes up the most of it. And so it has more of an impact than I think most people realize. And so, you know, you can go out and buy the cheapest, uh, you know, American two row pale malt you can get. And sure, there's a time and a place for that. But I think, uh, you know, it's not always the best option, especially as you. Uh, are picking very specific styles to brew. So I think after today's episode, hopefully you guys out there listening will will agree with us and, and maybe come away with a little more info on all the different options that are out there. Yeah, so the first question we really need to ask is, what the hell's a base malt? That's a good question, Marco. One that I've been uh, delving into the last uh, couple of weeks. Not that, you know, haven't been base malting for uh, since I've been brewing, but um, yeah. So for you know anybody that's just getting into this, base malts are really the uh, the malt that makes up the majority of a grain bill most of the time. And uh, the reason for that is reason why the base malts are that uh, big percentage is you need a uh, a malt that has enough what's called diastatic power, really like. Uh, enough enzymes in it to be to make sure you are doing proper and efficient uh, conversion of uh, starch into sugars during your mash. So it can be anywhere from you know 60% to 100% of your your grain bill so you could make a, a beer totally with that or you'll but typically you're gonna have some kind of base malt and then adding in other specialty malts and other kinds of you know grains and adjuncts to kind of steer the beer in, in different directions and, and you know, give its own uh, character. So depending on what you want to make, uh, you're going to be popping those in uh, either right during the, you know, the, the full mash or sometimes steeping them at the end. But your, your base malts are uh, really just like it sounds. It's, it's the base of your, uh, your mash, base of the beer. I, I was going to talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the American base malts and yeah i mean i guess on. before yeah. we get into yeah. you know some like specific you know characteristics of uh you know the different malts uh, you know the probably the most obvious question when somebody's listening to what you just had to say it's you know what why can't i use carafa three as my base malt versus two row like what what is it the difference between a specialty malt that the, the dumbed down layman's term difference between specialty malt and a base malt. I think yeah, so, those, you yeah, know, those ahead, specialty though. malts are usually um, 
they're they're missing a lot of those enzymes that Tim was talking about. So they're not able to convert their own starches during the mash. And so you need those enzymes and that diastatic power from the base malt to to do that work on those uh, specialty malts. And also a lot of those specialty malts have been roasted or or kilned in certain ways to bring out certain flavors. So like a you know a, a honey malt has been uh, you know it's a specific type of uh, malt that then's been kilned in a certain way to bring out those honey flavors. And you wouldn't want to use a hundred percent of your grain bill as honey malt. Um, they're just I don't even know what that would taste like. But okay, honey, <laughs> yeah. But you're you know like you mentioned Carafa three that also. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember uh, Switzer. Is that one of those huskless? Uh, no, uh, that, that, yeah, that'd be the that special. One. Yeah, the special Carafa would be the dehusked one. It's supposed to have less yeah. bitterness. But and, and on the other side of that, the other spectrum are the one the crystal malts, right? So those have been stewed and they're already converted. So it's mm-hmm. the, it's the other end. So you really don't even need any enzymes uh, for those crystal malts. So if you're adding those uh, into something that doesn't have a lot of diastatic power, you'll be all set because the job's already been done. You're just dissolving those sugars back into the beer. And this is one of those things that can be uh, challenging for somebody who's uh, new into all-grain brewing that's walking into a homebrew shop that has a hundred different options. And how do you know which one's a base malt and which one's not? Uh, You know, this is where we'd suggest using something like Beersmith because that's going to help you a ton because it's going to have a bunch of information in there. But also not being afraid to have that conversation with uh, you know the worker at the the homebrew shop to really help guide you, so you don't make a mistake. You're just going to walk into a wall of buckets that have a bunch of labels on there, but they don't say base malt, specialty malt. Some of them will use the word specialty in the name of uh, the malt, like what Switzer just mentioned a second ago. But it's really important when you're going into uh, a homebrew shop and you're preparing your recipe that you're using some guide. Uh, if you're not totally sure what a base malt is versus what isn't and again a honey malt sounds like it if you read the description of a honey malt you're probably saying like this would be great as a base malt mm-hmm. uh, and you know through experience you'll find out the the hard way that it probably isn't the best idea uh, but again uh, you, using some of those uh, external resources that you have and uh, resources at a homebrew shop or uh, fellow homebrewers uh, to help you out in figuring out which ones are base, considered base malts and which ones uh, are not. I, th- I think one of the exciting things we're, we were talking about is that we're going to get into you know all the different maltsters, the different heritage breeds, the different types of options that you have out there. And if you have a really well-stocked uh, local homebrew store, you're going to have a lot of options right at your fingertips. There's always online and other ways to find them. But what we're talking about is how great it is that, that these things, the pricing on these things is not that different, right? If you're buying a sack of something from Wireman or you're buying buying just a sack of American two-row, you know, 20 bucks difference in a sack, you break that down to a per pound, it's not a whole lot of money. So it really gives you the freedom to kind of pick what you want. And there are a lot of different options out there. A lot more recently, I mean, I, gosh, I mean, I think about over the last five years, how many options of malts you have at our disposal versus we did 15 years ago. Right. You see Pilsner in a recipe and it's not, you know, you don't just grab the Pilsner malt. You've got, you know, 10, 15 sometimes. I know, it's bananas. <laughs> it's almost overwhelming sometimes. And you're, yeah. then you're trying to figure out, you know, which pills am I using and, and then noodling that through and trying to yeah. find I remember when our homebrew store made the 
the jump to the 120 buckets of grain. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, before that, they had one thing of American two row, one Pilsner, yeah. and then, you know, a couple crystal malts and some wheat and some oats. And I mean, it was like, it was slim pickings. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, like walking into, uh, into Costco, into the cereal aisle, like, holy crap, there's so many choices in however much you want. Yep. And, um, the, the beauty of it, it honestly is, um, you know, we've, we've talked about this a bunch of times uh, on the podcast that homebrewing is experimental and innovative and creative. And, you know, if you're trying to create a really traditional style, you, you have access to those malts now where before you didn't before. But if you just want to have a little bit of, I mean, if you want to go bananas and do a 100% honey malt beer, have at it. It's probably not going to be that great, but you do you, you know, figure it out, have fun. Uh, but, you know, there are some things that have made it a little bit more confusing. Like you have Pilsner, but then you have bohemian pilsner and then you have floor malted pilsner and then you have like it's just like you've got all these different options to play with so hopefully once we start going through and i think tim you're going to kick us off by diving into the american malts but hopefully this conversation will help you understand a little bit more on appropriate malts to use for those classic styles you guys know we love classic beer styles uh, and then you know you'll get a better understanding if you do want to experiment a little bit and and what would be a fun experiment to try so tim kick us off the americans they got to go first they're the most arrogant so let's go well interestingly interestingly there there actually there are no uh natively uh malting barley is, is not native to the america so we actually didn't have any of our own <laughs> stuff to begin with so we were messing around with like maize and, and stuff like that to be wheat oh wheat yeah so <laughs> it's really not until so i i'm just going to throw a little history into this because the the malts themselves are are pretty vanilla but i, I you know as i was digging around it was kind of interesting uh, some of the history behind it so really we didn't have any uh, really two row malt in the americas till like the early you know 17th century the english dutch and french you know set us up with those and uh you know down in mexico they were getting the same thing from uh from the spaniards and uh, so that it you know two row was was kind of really did great in the uh in the, along the east coast but then as you started moving west it didn't really grow quite as well and that's where that's where the six row started kicking in and, and interestingly does anybody know where the at least our uh, modern day uh mid-western six row cultivars you know where uh, where, the, where that where its roots are from yeah. i couldn't tell you no. china Oh, funny. Really? Yeah, they call it Manchurian type. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting too. So, you know, so we've got uh, a six row and two row. Sounds, you know, I, I kind of wondered about that when I first started brewing too. You know, what, what's physically the difference between them? And uh, you know, the flower or the spike of the uh, of the plant, barley, on on a two row. You know. Each node that's growing a kernel has two kernels. You know, one at a time. And you look, you got uh, two rows of kernels going up the up the spike, and six rows, uh, six you know, six uh, kernels per per row on the on the spike going up. So that's you know, it's pretty pretty straightforward there, but. I thought it was pretty. I thought it was way more scientific than that. I thought it was like six row had higher protein content. Like I. Oh well, yeah, there's differences too. You're jumping ahead, Mark. Yeah right. Oh oh. oh. <laughs> 
Oh, excuse me. Sorry. I, <laughs> keep my mouth shut. Couldn't help myself. True. No. So, yeah. So they, they uh, six row was kind of took over in the, uh, the Midwestern states, and as production moved west, the, the conditions six row grew a lot better, and that's where uh, we, uh, a lot of the breweries started using six row. So, in fact, really, America's about the only country that uses six row. Uh, really, there's nobody in, in Europe or, or elsewhere that uses six row. But uh, but you're right, Marco. So that's the, the advantage to six row versus two rows. The six row is a little more protein heavy, uh, which means it's a little less uh, starch, but it has a, a better, we talked about it earlier, diastatic power. And uh, so it's what, what has been the advantage for especially large scale brewing is that it has enough diastatic power that it can convert, you know, adjunct unmalted grains. So if you're mixing in things like uh, you know corn and rice and oats and, and things like that to kind of stretch things out, some things that are a little less expensive, those uh, citro malts will have enough enzymes in them to be able to convert those effectively and on a large scale, you know, like a Budweiser kind of uh, you know scale. They're using those adjuncts and using a you know, good percentage of six row to, to kick in those enzymes and provide that conversion. But um, you know, two row, two rows predominantly. You know, you can make just about any beer with with two row or a, a lot of beers. It's uh, you know they're they're both two row and six row, very light uh, color wise. Um, both you can use up to a hundred percent of the uh, of that uh, grain in in the recipe in your you know in your mash, but uh, two row tends to be a little bit sort of cleaner, sweet, multi flavor. Uh, people describe the, the six row as a little bit more of a grainy sweetness. Um, so depending on what you're you know, you're looking for, you sort of go one to the other. Um, the other kind of advantages to two row I think uh, from a practical standpoint is for for home brewers uh, two rows have a, a more uniform and greater kernel size which is important when you're using like two roll two roller crushers roller mill you know, pressure uh, roll mills and uh, so you get a better crush out of it because of that uniformity Two rows a little bit better, like one to two percent better extract rates over six row, but again, more of a kind of a big deal if you're doing large scale brewings. It's going to be a blip on your radar if you're doing home brew wise. But six row has some, I think, downsides for the home brewer in that you can, because of the amount of protein content, you can get a little too much color development. Is a uh, one uh, potential uh, downside get filtration issues because of that protein content. Again, if you, it's just like, you know, maybe when you're using 100% of it to a little more haze formation, a little more uh, apt to have issues with DMS. Haze formation? Isn't that what everybody wants in their beer <laughs> these <laughs> days? Yeah. Haze boys! <laughs> so that's, uh, that, you know, they're not huge differences, and I think over the past, you know, the 20 years or so, it's become... Uh, little less differences be between the two, the two row and six row somewhat neck and neck. But um, the other the other thing I discovered and I was just gonna throw this out there, between uh, 
Canada and the United States, maybe it's going to be too obvious, but uh, what do you think, um, you know, production-wise of uh, two or uh, uh, malted barley is uh, Canada versus the, the... It's probably Canada. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost double, in fact. Yeah. yeah. And, wow. Uh, interestingly, <laughs> though, here in the U.S., we, we do it's a higher percentage of six-row. Canada's way more on the, on the two-row side. And uh, Canada exports a ton. We, here in the U.S., hardly export any of our grains we use them all up and we're actually one of Canada's biggest customers as well so um, yeah I, you know they're such vanilla grains they didn't really have a whole lot more <laughs> yeah, well, actually, about that so I'll be throwing a whole lot of really interesting stuff when we get to uh, Switzerland Phil yeah, you know and a lot of the criticism on uh, you know American malt is that it's bland right it's bland it doesn't have a lot of character and you know what I mean there's some beers where that's what you're looking for or you want to make an American lager and put a lot of rice or corn into it, and you need it to convert. And I've got I've got one theory as to why there's not a lot of, lot of six row in uh, continental Europe, and there might be a little thing called Reinheitsgebot, where you're not allowed to add you know corn or rice to your beer, so you don't need any extra enzyme. Yeah, you know, or or other specialty grains. You know, I think of the specialty grains as my uh, my pantry in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. Where I'm throwing in a little bit of this, a little bit of that, just to you know different kind of want to color flavor and things like that well i think that by and large uh, this plays into american style brewing right i mean uh, the styles of beer that are most commonly brewed in the united states uh, don't rely on complex malt characters right i mean ipas are about hop character and bitterness with some malt uh, backbone especially new england ipas more commonly um, but those are using uh, malts that aren't all two row. They're using some other specialty malts that are giving complexity. But, but the uh, you know up until recent times, uh, American beers have relied on other flavors to make them covetable and taste great, and it hasn't been malt driven beer. Uh, so I think that makes sense. Other than you know, your exceptions to that are going to be. Uh, you know the American stout which even is still a hoppier version of a stout or American barley wine which certainly relies on some malt character but is a hoppier version of it they are really going after some other flavor profiles that it's not always about the malts and two row six row do the job that's necessary which is provide some sweetness and give you those enzymes that are going to um, allow for a healthy fermentation and production and so it, it totally makes sense that that's what we rely on because the beers that have traditionally been produced in this country are kind of vanilla anyway. Yeah, especially, right, previously, you think about everything up till, you know, 10, 15 years ago or maybe a little bit longer when uh, craft brew was kicking in. It was a lot of, a lot of bud-like beers, so you didn't need much more than two rows, six rows. But at the... At the homebrew level, you know, I think you touched on it, Marco, that your, your IPAs, your stouts and porters, um, beers where f- the flavor is coming from something else, American Turo is probably what you want to use because it is inexpensive. Um, it's probably the cheapest base malt you can get for us here in the States. Um, <clears throat> and if it's not your goal to have these big... Uh, 
base malt driven flavors. That's all you really need in your beer. You'd cover and, them up anyway, right? You're kind of wasting yeah, your gonna, time. You just need to, you know, you need some sugars in there to, to make some alcohol. You need a, a blank canvas. Well, and you could argue exactly. that it's, mm-hmm. and you can totally argue that it's actually accentuated recently with things like, you know, fruited sours and milkshake mm-hmm. IPAs where they're, adding so much other pastry stouts they're adding so much other stuff that malt really is the last thing that anybody's thinking about in uh you know a swedish fish milkshake sour they didn't uh, spring like for wireman to uh <laughs> to make that <laughs> swedish fish beer so so yeah so again this it totally plays into uh the, you know the style of brewing that that happens in the u.s where when you know we're going to make the switch over to to british malts and you can see just how different because british beers and anybody that's listening to this broadcast that's had a british beer knows that there is certainly more emphasis on malt and malt character and complexity uh, as compared to uh, u.s beers i mean we tim you talked about it six seven years ago when west coast ipa dominated nobody was drinking a west coast every sale like i love the malt profile of this west coast ipa it was like bitterness and pine and and all those other hop characters so uh, but i mean you can just totally tell as we go through this conversation how it's um just an evolution well not an evolution because the u.s where the u.s are the ones that have actually evolved a bunch of stuff we changed everything because yeah. you know we just don't want to do anything the way it's supposed to be done uh, but uh you'll, you'll see as we talk about it how just if we, we're not covering belgian too much which we should have done that i guess we didn't add, add that to the I, group, I, i've but, got a, a couple talking points oh yeah perfect yeah, yeah. All right, my, my guy but what i'll say one thing that we should cover before we go forward is that we really take it uh for granted you know all the hard work and advancement uh that the maltsters have done because you know, 100 years ago, uh, you start looking back and these malts, they weren't able to create that diastatic power. And that's mm-hmm. why you had to do all these complex mashing regimens and decoctions and all these things to tease out the starches and, and convert. So, I mean, we're, the fact that we can do a single infusion right now is, it's, a, it's an amazing advance, advancement in technology. So back then with six row, that must've been great. I mean, it had more potential and that probably helped them, you know, in their process and those huge big breweries were able to crank out beer faster and with less energy and less work uh, by using those malts but it's it's really come a tremendous way and that's some of the criticism for people that that do decoctions and and go through those extra steps is that look they did all this work so we don't have to do that now you can just do a single infusion hmm gmos hmm (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I, yeah I, I really prefer not to be attacked tonight, so we won't, we won't do that. You don't even need to mash in. You just add water. <laughs> yeah. You've heard us talk about them on our podcast. Our local homebrew store is offering the listeners of Strike Mash Boil an awesome deal on their first order online or in person. Beer Wine Hobby at 87 Andover Street in Danvers, Massachusetts is our go-to homebrew store. They have everything you need to brew a batch of beer, wine, or cider. They have more than 100 fresh grains, all the classic and new world hop varieties in a variety of sizes, and yeast from White Labs, Y Yeast, Imperial, and Omega. So for listeners of Strike Mash Boil, use promo code MVPOD to get 10% off your first order. Go to beer-wine.com to get started. That's MVPOD. All right, so then uh, I guess we should 
dive into the British malts and, and uh, you know, we mentioned a few of the styles that American malts are typically used for, uh, New England IPAs, uh, basically any of the hoppy beers, but what you're probably drinking on a regular basis here in the U.S. Uh, is probably using some of those American malts. Now, Phil, you're going to take us into the British stuff, tee it up. I hope you're going to do as good of a job as Tim just did in giving yeah, us we'll the see. full depth history here. Well, so, you know, probably when you first think about British malts and, and British barley, the one that probably pops to your, your mind first is Maris Otter. Um, it's probably the most famous, at least here in the U.S., probably one of the easiest to get a hold of English uh, malts. Um, you can get it from Crisp. You can get it from Tom Fawcett. You can get it from Muntins. Um, it's a two-row, low-protein winter barley. Um, it's a traditional malt over in the UK. Um, <clears throat> it's that authentic British flavor. It's malty tasting. It's uh, famous for use in Cascales. Um, and so if you're looking for that, that kind of low gravity, low alcohol flavor, but with lots of malt profile, Maris Otter is going to be able to give it to you because it has so much malt flavor from the base malt. So when you're using very little to get a 3% you know, English mild, you want all this big malt flavor when you're only using, you know, 10 pounds or less, maybe six pounds if you're doing a five gallon batch. Um, <clears throat> so you want all that big, genuine malt flavor without a ton of uh, extra, um, you know, really like saying English mild, you're just using your, your specialty malts just to change the color a little bit, bring in a little bit of roast, bring in a little bit of chocolate, not a lot, right? So most of that malt flavor is going to be coming from that, from that Maris Otter. Um, but what's crazy is Maris Otter is really an heirloom variety. Um, it's not the most uh, grown over in the UK. That's been taken over by some of the um, more disease-resistant and higher-yield varieties. But to most brewers, being able to say we use Maris Otter in our beer, especially in the UK, it's that's pride. And there's a, a several brewers here in the States who are doing uh, English-style beers, Um who take a lot of pride in, in importing Maris Otter. And I mean, you could probably get away with two row and, and hitting it with some specialty malts to, to try and boost that malt flavor. But um, you know, brewers who really care about their craft are, are using Maris Otter. I was just going to ask, is, so Maris Otter, is it a, uh, is the, you know, it's, it's a two row, but mm-hmm. so is what sets it apart a, the, cultivar of two row so yeah actually thanks for bringing that up so in the uk most most of your barleys are there all their names are the cultivars um so this is the maris otter cultivar of of barley um you know it's uh over here in the states i think american two row i bet you there's dozens of cultivars or canadian two row uh that we don't even know about because it's just all lumped together and it's just american two row barley uh, whereas in the UK, their varieties, whether it's Maris Otter or we're going to talk about Golden Promise or uh, Optic or Pearl or uh, Halcyon, those are all varietals. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a different way of looking at barley over in the UK versus here. And it's interesting, too, because you know other maltsters, they'll sell a Pilsner malt or a wheat malt or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it might be a blend. It's going to be a blend of different varieties. It's going to be whatever had a good yield or was selling a little bit less or for whatever right. reason. But 
uh, you know, you're buying something different when you're buying, you know, that heirloom, that cultivar, when it's named, it has to be from that region, it has to be that, that cultivar. And that can be, that's why it's more expensive. I mean, they might have a, yeah. a tough year and there's not a lot of it. So demand goes up, um, but it's just, it's much more, uh, much more variable. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the high diastatic power and that these are highly modified malts. You can still get floor malted Maris Otter. Um, and uh, Mike, you're going to be talking about floor malted yep. Pilsner, I'm sure. So those are the traditional methods of malting grain where you're putting your barley out on a floor and you're running it with hand rakes. You're walking through it and turning it with rakes. And that floor malted barley is going to not be as perfect. It's mm-hmm. not going to be as consistent all the time. It's not going to have the same diastatic power. It's not going to be as efficient. So that's where your step mashes are going to come in or in German brewing, your maybe your traditional um, decoction mash. And you're going to need that to be able to get the same efficiency as, you know, maybe an American two row or non-floor malted Maris Otter. So the next one that I wanted to mention, that's probably kind of like a Maris Otter light. And it's probably the, the next easiest you can get here in the States is Golden Promise. And this is actually a Scottish variety. Um, <clears throat> and it's it's actually used more in uh scotch distilling than it is in brewing um, but golden promise is a spring barley it's another two row um, it's kind of maris otter light light sweet wort bready flavors very popular in scotland so if you're using or if you're doing a scottish beer of any style uh, you want to use golden promise um, it is uh, it's actually been kind of for me it's the one i've been switching over to from from maris otter for all of my english styles um it just has this beautiful sweet uh uh bready character to it um if you've ever had or had the had the the joy of having a timothy taylor landlord which is probably one of the more famous english um bitters from the north of england that's that's all golden promise um, all of your Scottish style beers are all golden promise. So, um, you know, it's just a, a great malt. It's usually a little less expensive than, than Maris Otter. Um, and it's not, uh, I haven't found it floor malted here in the States, but you can definitely get it that way over in the UK. Um, so there are a couple others. Uh, Halcyon, which is another two-row winter variety, it's very biscuity. Um, it's it's more used uh, now than Maris Otter is, at least in big brewing. Um, <clears throat> and then Optic is another style. It's another spring variety. I, I don't, I haven't really seen either of these here in the U.S., but over in the U.K., the Malt Miller has it. Um, you can get it over there really easy. Uh, Optic, you can get floor malted. Um, and then Pearl is the other variety that you can get in the States. In fact, I just uh, ordered a sack of it in our, our uh, grain bulk grain buy you. that we're doing. <laughs> Did you? Yes. Uh, I, I got a, uh, a tip for, uh, for using Pearl in an upcoming beer uh, from, some, uh, from some of the guys in Nerax. So anyway, uh, Pearl is a, another delicious bready. Uh, style of malt from the UK. It's a traditional style. It is going to be darker than a standard Pilsner or two row or even a Maris Otter. Um, but again, if you're looking for that 
English flavor profile, you want to use an English barley and Pearl is going to be a great one for that. And what I was told is if you're going to go for an English IPA, if you're going for an English pale ale, go for Pearl. Pearl is going to give you that malty British backbone for that English IPA. So if you want to step it up from Maris Otter. All these varieties, you know, they, the English just tend to kill more, right? Like they don't want. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The opposite of the continental for those pale, those pale pilsners and everything, where they're they're you know trying to kill them as lightly as they possibly can. Um, the British seem to just be in a great way, uh, just doing a little bit darker, a little bit more complex, yeah. and really getting yeah. getting a lot more flavors out of that. So if you're getting a, a Simpsons, uh, Simpsons is another company that I forgot to mention. Uh, if you're getting a Simpsons, um, their color for their Maris Otter is. Uh, like a four Leva Bond, which is you know mm-hmm. much darker than the probably one point eight or two that you get with an American two row. Mm-hmm. Some would say it's twice as dark. <laughs> Some would say <laughs> mathematicians. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I so you're talking about how wonderful these malts are to create British beers, but something that I want people listening uh, to think about is when you're building a recipe to make your New England IPA or your American mm-hmm. IPA and you're going out there and buying two row I would you know suggest that if you have found that ah, my beer is falling a little flat or you want to get that little extra something out of it is take a second to look at some of these British malts uh, particularly Marisada Pearl or uh, golden promise because they're going to give you that little bit of extra sweetness that little bit of extra complexity that could make a huge difference in making a traditional uh, I'm just calling it traditional but an american style beer uh, and you you'll notice and we haven't gone into this uh, i don't think we, we haven't done a yeast episode we should probably talk about doing no, a no, yeast episode yet. at some point but you see a lot of the new england ipas have been using English strains of yeast because it does help to accentuate some of the malt character. Uh, so, you know, take a peek at some of these if you're making those American style beers. You might be pleasantly surprised how it might elevate your beer just a touch and give you a little bit more balance and a little bit more sweetness in your finished product. And the last couple batches of my New England IPA have been all Golden Promise. Um, I just, it has, uh, I mean, I'm buying stuff by the sack, right? So I'm going to have certain things on hand. But uh, yeah, it's that little bit of complexity, a little bit of extra something, something on that beer to to back up all those, you know, that Citroen mosaic and Galaxy and whatever the hell else we throw into our New England IPAs. Yeah, I, I almost always add Golden Promise to my New England IPAs. And uh, I've used Pearl in the, in the past too. I haven't used Maris Otter as often as I probably I have. should. It's it's okay. I think a little too malty, eh, right? A little Does bit too much. Yeah. I, 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 I think it depends on how how heavily hopping you are. I, I lean more towards the lighter pale ale side, so I think it's too much. I think if you're going for like a big double IPA, big double hazy, mm-hmm. I think it'll be okay. One thing yeah, what, we didn't talk about was uh, was blending base malts, right? We're talking about base malts. As <laughs> I, if, I was just going to yeah, say that. I caught you. Yeah, base malt <laughs> is if you pick one base malt and then you add, you know, specialty malts. 
you can blend base malts for sure. And mm -hmm. once you start getting familiar with the flavor, the character, you know, let's say you're adding a Marisotter or a Golden Promise to a pale ale uh, that you're hopping a lot and you feel like it's a, a distracting amount. If you're, if it was all Golden Promise, it might be too much for you. Um, you can blend that with some Pilsner. You can, you can pull those flavors back. Um, and you know, you can add Vienna Munich. We'll get into those later, but blending those, uh, base malts can really, I mean, then we, then, then it's a million variables, right? You can sure. really make your own beer that, that somebody else has to follow your recipe to a T to, to duplicate. Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly what I was just going to say. Uh, cause when I was talking about using golden promise, it was in addition to the standard base malts mm -hmm. that I might already use. So I typically will, will, I jump back and forth between six row and two row in new England IPAs. And if, you know, if I have a 10 pound base malt uh, mash bill, it might be 60% two row, 40% golden promise. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the numbers that I have found that work well for me because I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to go all in, but in the experience and all the batches of beer that I've done, I want that, just that, again, that touch, that little extra boost of sweetness, that little breadiness, that little balance that it creates when you're really hopping up a beer. So again, that, that's the fun of what we've been talking about is that experimentation that you get to do is you're always doing uh, these 100% uh, two row beers. Well, add 10% of Golden Promise, add 15% of Pearl, see what it does for you and you get to really uh, build from there. And then obviously if you're doing a traditional English style of beer, then you'll want to do that and you can start to have fun and go the opposite. Phil would absolutely ad advise against this, but you could say, I'm going to cut down on some Golden Promise and add a little bit of two row in there and see what's going on. Hey. Phil's shaking his head. He's like, fuck that. No, no. Don't do that shit. It happens. You go into the bucket and you're like, I swore I had 15 pounds of this and you only have 10. And next thing you know, it's like, all right, am I doing two row or am I doing Pilsner? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But you know, one thing I, I, I was talking about all these great flavors and a little bit of sweetness and breadiness and, and malt character and all that. But a lot of these English uh, malts are going to bring more body to your beer. And so if you are looking for something, you know, of an American style, that's a little drier, um, you know, these English uh, malts are probably not going to be exactly what you want. But as we were talking about with blending, you know, maybe that's where you get some of that dryness, but you get a little bit of that character on the, on the other end of it. You can also play around with how you mash it as well, right? So we're talking mm -hmm. about these these base malts, yeah. and depending on your mash schedule, you know that oh, yeah. you, you could mash that you know really low, and mm -hmm. uh, instead of getting that body, it goes away. You get some of that flavor, but not the body. Or you mash it really high, and you get a lot of that character. So you can yeah. you can do a lot with a base malt through your mash schedule to really change the characteristics. Yeah, I was just uh, at Backbeat Brewing, which I think is one of my new favorite breweries here in Massachusetts. They They've got four cascales on all the time. Uh, and and uh, Pete had a uh, mild on on cask. And so we were chatting about that. Pete's the owner and the brewer. And uh, he was telling me about his mash schedule. And, you know, he uses all uh, British malts. And he is running a mash schedule up 155, 156 for, those, uh, for that mild. So you get all that body, but it's still a 3% beer. Yep. And that's probably one of the tough, toughest things about brewing such a low gravity beer is you can very easily end up with this very dry, thin beer very quickly. And it's all driven by that mash schedule and that malt that you picked. 
If you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. Yeah, awesome. I mean, so I mean, I can't wait to hear what Switzer has to say. You get to follow it all up and, yeah, and right. yeah get, get us into the Continental Malts, which is such a massive gamut of options there. So, yeah. um, why don't you kick us off and, and take us down that road? Yeah, I mean, it's there, there's a lot going on, right? And there's a lot of history. Um, I thought the easiest thing to do would just be to, to talk about, you know. The, the regions, more or less, some of the major maltsters. There's, there, there's got to be a million small maltsters out there, uh, and, and a lot of these breweries. You know, some of the ones that are, you know, world class actually are malting their own uh, Augustiner malts their own. Um, there are a lot of them that have their own malting house. So, if you're even trying to duplicate your beer, you're never going to do it because they they have their own processes in place. But if you think about the malt houses in continental Europe. Big ones that ever come to people's mind, Wiremen. There are a lot of people that won't brew any, you know, German beer, continental beer without using Wiremen. Uh, that's based in Bamberg. It's huge. They have malting houses that are other places in Germany, and obviously they make, you know, Bohemian malts. We'll talk about where they have to get that uh, that barley from the Czech Republic. Um, the other giant one out there is is Best Malts, and that's based in Heidelberg. Um, some people use those interchangeably. Some people will, uh, you know will not brew a beer rather than use one of those other, <laughs> one of the other ones. Sounds like a team sport. It yeah. is, it is more or less, especially when you get into the German brewing group. Um, if you look elsewhere in Europe, uh, Malterie Franco-Belge is in France, uh, Dingemans is in Belgium, Swain is Netherlands, Castle's another Belgian one. Um, you know, they, some of the bigger ones can kind of source malt from, from all over Europe. Um, you'll see some of the, the heirloom ones are from different parts in, in Europe. They're just malted there. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's going to be the region that they're in. Um, and that, that brings us to, you know, why are you going to pick one malting house over another? If they're all making Pilsner, if you can buy Pilsner malt from Maltery Franco-Belge or Dingemans or, or Wireman, why would you do it? And, you know, we'll talk a little bit as we go through the different characteristics of it. But, you know, one of the main things people think about is terroir. Like if I'm going to make a, a French Saison or I'm going to make a uh, Belgian triple, you know, why wouldn't I get Pilsner malt from that region, right? If that's that's what I'm trying to create. That's one, you know, one reason to do it. You know, if you're a little bit more complicated, you might have some, you know, Wireman heirloom malt that you tasted and you know really well and you say, wow, I, I bet they're not doing a Saison with this and that might bring something cool to the table. But for the most part, an easy place to start is just to to have that terroir, to, to know that I'm making that Belgian triple with uh, with you know, two row barley pilsner malt from that area. Um, so that's that's is that, is that maybe explain a little bit about terroir. I mean, it's a huge, it's obviously a big thing in uh, the winemaking world. But uh... yeah, right. Well, yeah. I mean, terroir is just it's the uh, characteristics of that region, right? It's the thought that. Um, if you're growing barley in a field in France and you're growing a, a barley in a field outside Bamberg, that they're going to taste different. Um, for the for the first part, it's probably going to be a different variety, right? We talked about all the different heirloom varieties in, in England, and Germany has them as well. 
Um, but it gets down more to you know, when you talk about wine, you know, it's the soil, it's the minerals in the soil, it's the way that the sun shines in that region at different times of the year. I mean, you can geek out and get crazy into that stuff, right? Um, I'm thinking of it more as a starting point for somebody to kind of pick something and, and a good reason if you don't have another reason, right? If you, if you don't say, well, I want this breadiness that I get from, you know, this, this Wireman floor malted Pilsner. Um, a good place to start and a good excuse is to use something that that is in that area. And granted, if you're if you love Cezanne Dupont, <laughs> you know if you get uh, your grain from the same maltery, I believe they use maltery Franco Belge or Dingemans. I actually I would have to look that up. But if you get the same the same grain they're using, you're going to get much closer to to cloning that beer if that's your goal. Um, so that's what I would say about that. Um, as far as talking about the different the different malteries, uh, I think the easiest thing to do, because a lot of this is is all around Pilsner malt, right? Um, is talking about Wireman first. And what I love about Wireman, there are a lot of people that are crazy fans, um, is that they do this flavor wheel. So if you go to their website and you know, you, let's say you're looking at their, you see at the homebrew shop, you see extra pale premium Pilsner malt. And you say, what is that going to be like? You know, you can do a Google search. You can try to go on Reddit or go on Facebook group. Uh, but they have this great flavor wheel that gives you all the, the breakdown. And I'm not going to say everything on it, but it focuses on, you know, the taste of the malt. Is it bitter, sweet, sour, caramel aromas, dark caramel, light caramel, toffee, malty aromas. Is it malty sweet, marmalade, biscuit, honey? Uh, the fruity, nutty aromas, vanilla, raisin, hazelnut, almond. It gets into smoky aroma, aromas, clove, wood smoke. That would be for their Rauch malts. Uh, roasted aromas, bready, dried fruit, roasted almonds, chocolate. So it goes around this flavor wheel, and it'll show uh, ratings uh, on that chart for each of their malts. So that gives you a great starting point. You know, if you're looking for something that um, is going to be sweeter or have more of a biscuit honey note, you'll be able to look through their catalog and kind of find uh, what fits there. Um, you know, for instance, their, their extra pale premium Pilsner malt, as you'd expect, is very lightly kilned. So those, uh, of those flavors are going to be pretty muted. It's the sweetness, the uh, malty sweet, the honey are all very low low scores because it's not going to bring a lot to the table because it's been killed so lightly. Uh, moving on to uh, their regular Pilsner malt, uh, sweetness gets accentuated. That malty sweet, that honey, you're just getting a little bit more of everything like you'd expect. Um, the cologne malt. So a lot of people look at their, their cologne malt and think, okay, this is what I want for a Kolsch. And I've had a lot of discussions about whether 100% cologne malt is going to make a good Kolsch. Uh, you hear a lot of arguments that, yeah, you should do that. It's a, it's a pretty dark malt. Um, it's uh, 3.1 to 3.9 Lovabond, and I've drank plenty of Kolsch and Koln, and I don't remember it being that dark. Um, and also, if you look at it on the flavor wheel, it really gets much more complex. That malty sweet, the biscuit, the honey, that even gets into the vanilla, hazelnut, almond um, in a subtle way. So it's a very complex malt. Um, and I imagine using it 100%. I'm sure there are people that have done it. I haven't done it myself. Um, it's not going to taste exactly like a regular Kolsch. You got anything to say about that, Phil? <laughs> no, I, I, I bet you they cut it. Yeah, right? Um, like they're I, using yeah. some of that cologne malt. It, you're getting some of those flavors in a, in a true Kolsch. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, they're not that dark. It's not going to be that in your face. I bet you they, 
Yeah, they're blending it with the pills or something like That's that. That's what I felt. And so what, what I actually just bought a sack of in that group buy was was the best malt, uh, their Heidelberg malt. And it's a very lightly kilned Pilsner malt. And from what I've read and what I'm hoping is that it's going to be a great malt for a lot of Kolsch. I've um, used that a bunch of times. The, yeah, right? How, how did that come out? Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think that's uh, now, more spot on. Yeah, not. I uh, haven't used it totally on its own. It's always needed a little something added to it, but mm-hmm. it's great stuff. Absolutely. Um, so just like Phil went through those heirloom varieties, uh, Wireman, there are a lot of heirloom varieties, obviously, in Germany. And the problem with those is that, just like hops, right, they're, they're more disease-prone, they're harder to grow, they're lower yield, so you've got to charge more money for them. Um, and so those big breweries probably didn't want to spend a lot of money, so they kind of fall out of favor. But like most things nowadays, we've wisened up and realized that you know, that ugly tomato is the best tasting tomato there is. So we've, we've brought back a lot of these cultivars, and it's pretty exciting because they are very complex and different. And like a lot of modern food science, what we go for is consistency, right? We want it to taste the same every time you have it. We want a McDonald's everything. And you wind up with something that's one note that, that's kind of bland. And I really feel like some of those standard Pilsner malts, especially, you know, American two-row, not to shit on our own, own grain, but <laughs> they become one note. And, um, you know, for instance, Bark is one that's come back um, that a lot of people that are, you know, in the German brewing group that are into German brewing have had a lot of fun using. Um, it is much more complex when you look at what they have it for the flavor wheel. I mean, it goes into the caramels, the toffees a little bit, a lot into the malty sweet, um, a little bit deeper into honey and biscuit. And what people have found brewing with that is that sometimes it even comes off too honey sweet, like too much sweetness. Mm. And so that those beers, a lot of people are lagering them a little bit longer. And that once that comes into balance, you get a lot more complexity than you do with, with regular Pilsner malt. That regular Pilsner Hellas might taste, you know, a little bit drier, a little crisper right out, you know, right after lagering a short time. But that this bark malt is really creating something special when you give it some time to kind of mellow and blend uh, together. So that bark is something really to look at. And they do not just their, their Pilsner with that, but they do Vienna and Munich with bark as well. Um, so they're really playing around with that heirloom variety. There's uh, Araclea, which is another interesting heirloom Pilsner malt, which is actually from Italy. It's a region around Venice. And, um, you know, that might be something if you're doing, you know, quote unquote, Italian Pilsner. Uh, I think people have accepted that as a kind of faux style. But um, if you want to use something that, that's from uh, Italy, you could do that. But if you look at the flavor wheel for that, it is it is pretty wild. It is spiraling kind of outside of the middle and it touches on almost every flavor so a very i've never brewed with this now after having done this research i feel like i want to uh (laughs) get into it um it even it 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 hits the left side the light side of the wheel which is that sweet the the light caramel the toffee the marmalade the biscuit the honey pretty deep really into honey but then it also touches on vanilla raisin hazelnut almond um, into the roasted almond like dried fruit almost kind of touching where Vienna and Munich get into um, it's a tiny bit uh, darker than than the other pills but not much so I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more, more research into this it sounds like a really interesting uh, Pilsner malt that gives a lot more character than, than some of the standard ones that you look at um, 
Asaria is very new. Uh, I'm trying to think if it's within you know, a few months that they've released this. And it's, uh, it's the oldest German malted barley variety that was approved uh, for beer production in 1924. So here's something kind of interesting and new to play around with. Um, it's not quite as complex as that uh, Araclea, but it does some of the same things where it kind of spreads out uh, in all directions. So again, you're thinking about a Pilsner that, that's much more complex. And again, this doesn't branch out in, in huge ways. So it's still a Pilsner malt. It's still going to be light. It's still going to be sweet. It's not going to dominate a beer, um, but it's, it's got much more complexity. And, and that's what's exciting about these heirloom varieties is that it's giving you something that's going to make a pale, nice Pilsner, but you can really play around with it. And I mean, and we're, we're just talking about these, these single heirlooms. You can really get crazy and start blending them together and uh, really making you know, a light Pilsner beer that's complex and interesting. Yeah, I was just gonna ask Michael, so when you're, if you were to mess around with some of these, uh, would, you, would you do a, a beer that you know and love and just go you know, something that's 100%? That's what a smart person would do, right? A smart person <laughs> would, would change one variable at a time. Um, I torture myself sometimes and... <laughs> still be, uh, you could still, feel, you know, if there's anything, any kind of specialty malts, even on a small scale that that's a, a recipe that you use. But yeah, it would seem like 100% would be the way to go. No, absolutely. And like having said that, the best thing to do would be to do, you know, like a homebrew club experiment. And you say, hey, we're going to do, you know, a single smash with these heirloom varieties and everybody you know make sure you make a good recipe and brew it oh, well but and let's we're taste them triangle test it oh i no. love it i love it yeah yeah I'll put it in an opaque cup and then we'll all uh-huh. smoke cigars before we taste it and say they all taste the same uh yeah. no we're not going to do that and i'm not talking about <laughs> anybody or any group in particular um philosophy but uh <laughs> no no it would be a great experiment to do that i i find that um I always say I should just do that, right? I should just get this one variety. I should just make a simple Pilsner. I usually end up playing around with a, different, a bunch of different varieties just based on my brewing schedule and, and kind of wanting to try everything. Um, but I am definitely going to start taking a look at those those heirloom. I know that Bark gets a lot of play. Um, Azaria is really new, uh, and I haven't heard much about that. And that well, Arachlea it's, it's seems old and new. At well, the yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's new made and a old. resurgence. It's, it's resurrected. Can you get those uh, <coughs> less than a, you know, a, a full sack? Oh yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, again, we want to support the local homebrew club or the homebrew, uh, homebrew store, but um, a lot of things are online. Yeah, you can find a lot of this stuff online. I bet we could put in a request to our guy and he would get a sack of it yes, and- we'll split it yeah. up. I bet you you got enough people in the club to split that five ways. Yep. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So those, I mean, those are really kind of the newer, exciting heirloom varieties that are coming out of Wireman, and uh, um, I, I didn't really scroll through too much on the the best malts catalog to know whether they're doing much with heirloom. But uh, I know that Wireman has a big focus on that, and I'll tell you, I just love that the flavor wheel that they do because as, as opposed to a few you know distinctions, oh, it's malty and honey, you know, it really shows you kind of how complex it can be, what it steers towards. Is it more the, you know, the breadiness, or is it sweeter? Is it more honey? Is it, you know, where is it? Is it caramel? It gives you a good visualization of, of what it's doing there. Um, Wireman sources uh, barley from Bohemia or Czech Republic, uh, and that is their Bohemian Pilsner line. Um, like Phil was talking about, they have both their regular Bohemian Pilsner and then they have the floor malted, 
And talking about that floor mall thing, you know, it's it's less consistent. But what what does that mean? It means it's a little less modified. Um, it it would hold up well for kind of a more complex mash step mash or decoction schedule, and it's going to give you a more complex flavor and a more complex beer. Um, they're both great options. Obviously, if you're making a Czech beer, we talked about terroir, and you know, one great excuse uh, for doing that is uh, you know buying uh, Pilsner malt from that region. Uh, Phil and I both went in on. We both got side poles. <laughs> We've got our lucre, our lucre uh, taps oh, it's now. Up. And, it's in the public now. Yeah, and now we both uh, got Prostajov pills from. Uh, uh, from the bulk buy. So we've got a sack of, of really nice Pilsner malt from the Czech Republic uh, coming in for the, to make a lot of, uh, a lot of fuel for those, those side pulls. Um, I think I bought two sacks. Oh, nice. Good. Yeah. I, I, you know, you spend all that money on a side pull, um, right? Short money got, to buy a couple you, sacks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you gotta have a, I, I think there's gotta be a Czech beer on basically on draft the whole time. But so, so having said that, um, my first beer on the side pole, I've been waiting for it to finish as a Czech Pilsner, and I used um, another uh, maltry I should talk about is, well, so there's a, a local maltry, Stone Path, and they import uh, their German malts from Irex, which I had the pleasure of being up in a castle, drinking a beer, looking down on that in Kulmbach when I went on a trip over there. Uh, giant malting uh, facility, just like Weirman. Um, and they have their own Irex Pilsner, their whole line of, of their own malts. And I buy uh, Stone Path Pils, which is their Pilsner, and I really love that. It's got a nice complexity, a nice honey sweetness. But I use that for my first Czech Pilsner, so you know I, I went against the grain. It's not uh, you know a Czech malt, but it's a beautiful Pilsner malt, and it's still going to make you know a great Czech Pils. So you're not you don't have to follow that rule of thumb, right? It doesn't have to right. be from that region or their terroir or, or whatnot. Um, a good, nice Pilsner is gonna make a good, nice Pilsner. Um, so moving on to the more kilned malts, um, Germans love to make a wide range of lagers. And once you get, you can only do so much with lightly kilned malts. Um, what's cool looking at that flavor wheel is you see what that malting process does to the characters. It starts swinging it much deeper into those, um, you know, the malty sweet flavors. It starts getting more into kind of the toasted nut, the dried fruit a little bit, and that much deeper into the breadiness. And so Vienna malt um, is a little bit further killing than a Pilsner. It's between a Pilsner and a Munich. Um, and that really brings that toasted note, uh, that bready note, that kind of uh, you know, little bit of to toffee, uh, malty sweetness, uh, but it's just a very nice thing to get, uh, you know, great amber beer. You can use 100%, uh, just like we talked about diastatic power, you can do 100% Vienna lager, and uh, it'll be very toasty, uh, very malty sweet. You can blend it with Pilsner, and you can kind of just tweak out a little bit more of those flavors and that breadiness into a Pilsner. You can blend it with a darker Munich, and you can kind of pull that Munich lager down more into, you know, a, a Merzen or a Maybach range. So it really is kind of that dial you can play with, um, and you can blend those to make, a, you know, an incredible range of beers. And they love to, to tweak those things and have their own little special recipe to have their own character. Um, as you get into Munich, uh, they have type one, which is a little bit darker. It's uh, five to 7.2 Lovabond. And uh, with that, you start getting into those darker flavors. 
So you get the roasted almond, the dried fruit, um, a little bit towards dark chocolate, that bready maltiness really starts to come out. Um, they bring it into kind of the vanilla, the raisin. A lot of people, and, I, and I'll get this too, is you get almost a fruitiness from it, like that dried fruit note um, that a really great dunkel gets. Um, and a little bit of chocolate cocoa. Um, if you're using that carafa malt like we were talking about, you can get some roastiness into things. You can go into Schwarzbier, but that's not a base malt, so we'll leave that out. Um, and then Munich too. So again, you're just killing it a little bit longer. It's up to eight to 9.9 .9 love a bond. And you just get deeper, richer flavors and it brings a lot of body to a beer as well. So those are all, I mean, <laughs> you talk about the different malt trees. Again, the, the amazing thing with brewing is just how many dials you're able to turn, right? There's just a, a million dials to turn between the malt, the hops, the yeast. Then you start talking about all the different base malts, all the different malteries. Um, it can be overwhelming, right? And so I think what's helpful is to kind of break down how you're going to make your decision. So you walk in and you guys chime in too. I think this is kind of a good wrap together what we're talking about. And instead of leaving everybody confused as to what the hell, you know, what heirloom <laughs> variety am I going to use next time and how I'm going to blend the other 10 Pilsner base malts to get the entire world of beer. You know, what, what's going to drive your decision? And we, we talked about terroir. That's a pretty, you know, easy, maybe a generic, but an easy and a well-rationed decision. You know, I'm going to make a French Saison, so I'm going to get my malt, I'm going to get French Pilsner, right, from uh, Franco-Belge. Um, if you're going to make a Bohemian Pilsner, you're going to get your malt, you're going to buy a Bohemian, Weirman Bohemian Pils. So that's a good justification. But beyond that, you know, do your research. Look at that flavor wheel at Wireman's, mm -hmm. jump on Reddit and find out, you know, who's used this Araclea uh, heirloom malt and what does it really bring to the table. Do some research and figure out what you want and what character you want from that because they all obviously have, uh, you know, a different character that they're going to bring after you do your research. Um, body, you know, some of these, especially the English malts, are going to give you more body. Are they kilned longer? Um, are they a lighter malt, you know, into the Pilsner range? Are they a little bit darker into the pale ale? Are they all the way into Vienna and Munich? Um, how are you going to, what are they going to bring to the party and how are you going to blend them? And then, you know, Phil, we talked about this, you know, are you going to experiment like crazy and say, wow, this Pilsner, I'm going to use a Rackley and then the next one I'm going to use a Zari and then I'm going to use a French Pilsner. Or do you really want to just develop your house, you know, your house character? Are you going to just say, I'm going to buy a sack of this Prasajov Pils and every Czech beer I make is going to be Prasajov Pils, right? And that's fun right. too. And that's kind of cool. Right. And by doing that, you really learn it. You know, you really right. learn that malt. You learn what it, what it's going to bring to the party and uh, you just create that house character. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're picking a malt, it's not just the next beer you want to brew. It's the next couple beers you want mm -hmm. to brew. And, you know, while you've been talking about the flavor wheel and uh, I've, we've got a screen share going. So I've been bouncing around on the screen share sh uh, with all these different malts. And, you know, one thing that Wireman I think is doing a fantastic job of not just telling you all these flavors, but also, you know, we're on the Munich uh, type two page right now. And it tells you it's great for, Fest beers, Marsons, uh, Keller beers, smoke beers, Dunkles, do uh, Double Box, uh, IPAs, Beer de Garde, British Brown Ale, Baltic Porter, English Porter, American Porter, Imperial Stout, Flanders Red. So you can buy, you know, one of these 
Um, maybe not necessarily you want to spend all the money on a uh, on one of these really expensive heirloom malts to just brew an IPA. But if you're doing you know a bunch of different styles of uh, you know, not American beers and you want a little more malt character, maybe look around at all these different options that are out there and say, all right, if I'm going to spend a decent amount of money and I'm going to have a sack of grain around for a bunch of five gallon batches, let me get the one that's going to provide the most bang across all these different styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by doing that, by using, you know, a Munich malt in your English beer, you know, some people yeah. might scoff at you, right? They're like, why wouldn't you use, you know, uh, victory or instead of Vienna or whatever the, the comparable right. alternative would be. But you know what? You might make an amazing beer. And if you didn't tell yeah. them that you used Weirman Munich in it, and they might say, wow, you know, I've never had a, a brown ale like this. This tastes fantastic. Right. And especially with those English beers, uh, that English yeast character is going to really come out and drive uh, some of those flavor profiles. And you you're really just going to come down to uh, it's biscuity, it's bready, it's malty, it's got a little mm-hmm. sweetness. You may not get into the nuance of the malt like you would with a 100% pilsner brewed with a right. Czech lager yeast yep. or a, or a, you know Bavarian lager yeast. Mm-hmm. Now, now in my experience uh, with uh, you know the continental malts is there the experimentation with them uh, to me has always been one way and what I mean by that is I, I have found that styles outside of the regions where these malts are are created um, have benefited from the use of these malts uh, American mm-hmm. beers have done really well like again mm-hmm. we, we talked about with English malts um, adding some to uh, New England IPAs adding some Pilsner to a New England IPA does some really great oh, stuff for sure. yeah. but uh, I don't I, I found that it doesn't work as well the other way like i haven't found where american malts or british malts have worked well in these continental beers uh so that's something that listen anybody can do anything that they want so have fun uh but you know if you want to save yourself some hassle i I probably would suggest that you don't use two row to make a czech pilsner uh, you know, it's probably not going to work out so hot for you. Uh, it'll still be beer. You'll still be able to drink it. But but I've always found in my experience that uh, these malts have always complemented other styles. But if you're going to make the styles of beer that are from these regions, you should try to stick to these malts. Well, and then that, that kind of plays back to that terroir, right? So if you're using American two-row to make a Czech Pilsner, you're making an American Pilsner because that's the flavor you're going to get, right? It's going to be a little bit muted, maybe a little sweet, but it's not going to have... Like that bready complexity, uh, maltiness that that Czech Pilsner malt, which is probably killing a little bit more, or maybe it's floor malted, um, and it brings that complexity. And I didn't think about this before, but Phil's talking about how the English yeast you know, would play very different with those malts. If you think about all the lager brewing in in the continent, that flavor of that malt's super important because you're not getting. I mean. I'll take that back. You do get character, and <laughs> lager yeast does a lot of different things, and you can get some very interesting flavors that they contribute. It's not just clean. I hate when people say a lager is just clean. Uh, you definitely get flavors and contribution from the yeast. However, the flavor of that malt is really what you're getting. So you need really good malt that's got complexity and flavor because you're not looking for the yeast to do that. Yeah. Was that a show-stopping I mean, re- revelation? <laughs> yeah, like, I think just, it was show-stopping right just there. Cut. <laughs> yeah. And next time, (laughs) no, I think you make a really, really good point. You know, um, you know, we talked about it, uh, on some past episodes where, where, uh, 
you know, we're home brewers, right? So if you're going to spend uh, some money on your beer, you know, we're not at the production level, right? So we're not buying a pallet of bark Pilsner. You're buying a sack, you know, and it's the most other than water. This is the next biggest ingredient in your beer. Um, you know, throw, throw a little more money at it. And I mean, I although we did like have, there, there was somebody whatever. in our homebrew club that I think purchased a pallet of grain during our grain buy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, he's also not brewing 10 gallon batches yeah, exactly right. or five gallon batches. But, you know, I mean, they say like, just throw some more money at it. Like, you know, it's no big deal. And, you know, some of these are more expensive, right? Even our grain buy, um, the wireman floor malted is, um, you know, it's probably almost double what an American two row costs for by the sack. But I think that it's much quality, more than twice as good. <laughs> yes. That's what I was going to say is that quality you're yeah. going to find in that beer that you brew. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about buying sacks. We just did this grip buy, so it's on our brain. And it's great. It's a great way to save some money. Um, it's a great way to get a lot of experience with one malt because you got to work through that sack depending on what mm-hmm. volume you're doing. But the other beauty is that you can go to a, the homebrew shop and you can buy a pound of anything and you can steep it in a pot and you can make a tiny little test batch. Or you can even just steep it in a pot, convert it, and then taste the wort and get an idea of what the character is. Um, mm-hmm. so you're not stuck with any one thing. If you're, if you're just buying your recipe that day, uh, you can change it up the next time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So guys, I mean, I think this was a pretty amazing conversation and for anybody who wants to geek out on this, hopefully they've, uh, you know, gotten a lot of info. There's plenty of resources out there. I'm sure we'll share, um, resources as we are, uh, advertising this episode, but, uh, you know the the biggest point that we can make out of this whole thing is as you're planning your brew day as you're planning a recipe really just take the time uh, to look into what it is you're trying to do and and you know we're looking at the wireman website right now which has some great resources on there but we've mentioned talk to your fellow home brewers talk to the homebrew shop go online uh, there's so much information out there and that's really what's going to make the difference in either experimentation and trying to create something new or really trying to hit those classic styles so guys this was an awesome episode i really appreciate the uh, thoughtful preparation that you guys put into educating everybody because you guys i mean there's some malts on here that i never heard of before and i'm like damn like i'm gonna start looking yeah, into no them because they, they look pretty cool uh, so i appreciate you guys taking the time and as always it's uh, been an awesome conversation absolutely yeah, and for uh, those out there listening if you uh want to ask us some questions you can hit up our facebook group uh facebook.com slash group slash mvhbc and then you can also go to anchor.fm slash uh strike mash boil and you can leave us a voicemail you can ask us questions there you can leave us some comments you can tell us to shut up you can whatever you want and we'll uh We'll uh, answer those questions or we'll play your message on a, on an upcoming show. So. Hey, we haven't gotten a voicemail yet, though, right? We haven't gotten We've a advertised this a few weeks. People, get, let's go. Like, somebody no. call up. Like, I want to hear somebody's voice yelling at him. Bob does beer things. He's got to be the guy. I called him out <laughs> about this a while ago. Yeah. Bob does beer things. Bob be or, the first Jake. person. We got Jake who uh, who listens to our show. Uh, he can he can come uh, leave us a voicemail. 
Uh, but yeah, if you want to hit us up on our Facebook group, we're on there every single day chatting about stuff. If you have some questions about some of these things, hit us up. We'll, uh, we'll give you uh, what we think and, and some of these resources that we we're talking about. We can send you links right there. So definitely hit us up there. All right. Uh, that's it for this show. Uh, we'll see you next week uh, on Strike Mash Boil. The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an American Homebrewers Association sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at MVHBC. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. And check out our website at MVHBC.com. Thank you.